Well, powerful little video, isn't it? What if the church acted like the church? Last week, Troy introduced uh, this series, the idea of posture. How do we align ourselves with the way of Jesus? And uh, Beck said, we live in a conflicted world, don't we? It's a world that increasingly sees Christianity as part of the problem rather than as the source of the solution. And uh, that's a difficult world for followers of Jesus to navigate. Last week, if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to listen to the, uh, the talk, but last week Troy introduced us to, uh, to the topic. And really, uh, this verse struck out to me. That's how Jesus came to be sitting at home with lots of tax collectors and sinners. There they were, plenty of them, sitting with Jesus and his disciples. They had become his followers. And Jesus, uh, Troy made the point that as followers of Jesus, we, we could see that Jesus was comfortable in the margins. And as Jesus followers, we need to learn to inhabit the margins and to inhabit them without judgment. Um, some time ago at New Community, we had this diagram, and I think it's a really helpful diagram. And if you look at the diagram at the bottom there, I reckon what Troy was focusing on last week very much was how do we, as followers of Jesus, love humanity? How do we love humanity in all of its breadth and depth? Uh, and today, we're going to talk about living with humility. Um, I'm going to have a lot of personal stories today about just how humble I am. So just <laughs> stay tuned Stay tuned for that, because a personal story just really hits the spot, I found. And um, at the top of this thing, Troy's laughing, but Troy, once, once I was conceited, but now I'm perfect. <laughs> um, how do we balance these things that often seem to be opposed. Conviction on one side, we hold our convictions and some, we hold some of them very strongly. And on the other side, uh, compassion. And Jesus in the middle there seemed to be able to balance those things uh, incredibly well. So I think that's a really helpful little framework for where we're going with this posture series. But today, uh, living with humility, a critically important posture, both in our actions and also in our conversation. I want to talk a little bit about both of those things today. Um, but initially, just to give you a little introduction to what I think uh, humility is and what it isn't. Um, in 1996, uh, Jim Collins, he's the author of a best-selling book, and some of you have probably read it, called Good to Great. And he surveyed something like 1400, over 1,400 companies, um, and he was trying to find what makes for a great company. And in researching these 1,400 companies, he ended up choosing 11 that he thought were truly great. And they were all headed up by what he called level five leaders. If you read his stuff, he's got all these levels and different qualities within these leaders. But a level five leader um, was really the, the pinnacle, and they were the leaders of these truly great companies. And he found that these leaders, uh, one of the things that characterised them was that they had humility. Um, they didn't seek success for their own glory. They saw success as being necessary so that the team and the organisation could thrive, not themselves. So they shared credit for success and they're the first to accept blame for mistakes. And he, he calls humility the signature dimension uh, that separated good leaders from great leaders. So in some areas today, clearly, humility is being recognised as a very, very valuable character, character quality. Um, but that hasn't always been the case. And although we recognise it today as a very desirable character quality, it's not something that's exhibited terribly often uh, in our world today. 
Now, I want to just talk about um, two words, humiliation or humility. Uh, in, in Jesus' time, the different words used to describe humility from the uh, Hebrew or from the Latin, which is the Roman, or from the Greek uh, cultures of that time, they all meant low, as in low to the ground. And so when used negatively, um, they con convey this idea of humiliation. Now, none of us likes humiliation. Anybody ever been humiliated? I was trying to think back at times when I've been humiliated. There's a few, but one that sticks out really strongly in my mind, I used to play football for North Q in the under-17s and in the Southeast Suburban League. It was a pretty rough sort of a league. When we used to go over and play St Kilda City, we all went prepared. Um, but I remember at half-time in a game against Borwin, up at Borwin Park there, the, the, the coach who used to be an ex-Hawthorne player, he looked at me right in the eye in front of all the other guys. He said, Prescott, you're playing like a wuss. And that was quite humiliating. Um, another form of humiliation is perhaps intellectual humiliation, isn't it? I remember at university, we had a, this professor, he, he taught us in fluid dynamics, I think you called it, um, and all went, a lot of it went over my head. But he was Professor Joubert, and Professor Joubert had been... Um, you know, he was very involved with the design of the Gretel yachts, you know, for the Americans' Cup, which they never won, but obviously the keels and that way, the, the fluid flowing past them was his thing. But in his lectures, he just loved to pick on you and ask you a question that was unanswerable. And I used to try and hide behind a column so that he wouldn't see me, but he, he somehow always picked me out. And you'd sit there, no idea, humiliated. So when we, when we use this word negatively, it's got those sort of connotations, to be put low. But positively, it means to lower yourself or to be humble or to act with humility. And so the two uses are radically different. And in the honour, shame type culture uh, of, of Jesus' day, the negative meaning was the dominant one, being humiliated, being defeated, being shamed. But historians tell us that prior to Jesus, humility wasn't an admired quality. It was not considered desirable. What was desirable was greatness. And uh, John Dixon has this quote. He says, Humility came to be valued in Western culture as a consequence of Christianity's dismantling of the all-pervasive honour-shame paradigm of the ancient world. And so if you were raised in the West, as most of us were, um, you're likely to think that honour-seeking, you know, pumping up your own tyres, is questionable, and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful, um, but we still struggle with it, don't we? So what is humility not? I say humility is not humiliation, and it's not being a doormat for other people, and it's not having low self-esteem, and it's not uh, curbing your strengths and achievements. I think all those things are really important for us to remember. Some people, think of when they think of humility, they think of somebody groveling and, and not wanting to be seen and, and all that sort of thing. So humility is not those things. So what is it? This is not my definition, but I think it's a good one. Humility is the choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Let me say that again. The choice to forego your status, deploy your resources, or use your influence for the good of others before yourself. Jesus demonstrated humility incredibly in his life but he didn't talk about it a lot there's just one verse that says how he describes himself as being gentle and humble in heart he says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and i'll give you rest 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of a, a rabbi in Jesus' time was like his taking on the, the, the teaching and the, the way of the rabbi. And so Jesus says, if you take on my way, um, it's a way of gentleness and humility, and you'll find that it's not weighty in terms of law-keeping, um, but it's, it's um, a, a road that is uh, worth following. Paul put it, I think, as good as any of us could put it, um, in terms of how we see ourselves and not um, what humility is not. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. He also said this, he said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's as good a definition of you, as you'll ever find of humility. Humility is willing. It's a choice. The difference between lowering yourself, which is humility, and being put low is humiliation. And so we make the choice to lower ourselves. We come from a place of dignity and we lower ourselves. Uh, whereas when you're humiliated, someone else is putting you low. But humility is also a social thing. It involves redirecting what we've been given, whether it's physical, intellectual, or resources, or whatever, for the sake of other people. Well, let's have a look then at what, um, at really humility in action. This is probably uh, the story that stands out in the Gospels about Jesus uh, demonstrating humility. This is Jesus' last night with his disciples. It's the final moments of his life. And he's so concerned that his followers embrace humility that he acted out. It's like an enacted parable, this story. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God, and that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what was ahead of him. And he could face it. The Father had put all things under his power, He'd come from God. He was returning to God. He knew that. So he was coming from a place of dignity. And this is really important, I think, as we talk about humility. Because if you're a follower of Jesus, as I am, your identity isn't bound up in what you achieve or how you look or how impressive you might appear in front of other people. But it's rather bound up in the fact that I'm loved by God. I'm his child. Uh, expressed beautifully by Christie before. Um, nothing in the world can separate me from his love. So that's a starting point. Knowing who I am really helps to live with humility. And then Jesus removed his outer garment. He wrapped a towel around himself. This was the uniform of a slave. Uh, washing feet was an important part of ancient life. But it was demeaning. It was done only by slaves and it was considered so demeaning that while Gentile slaves might be compelled to do it, a Jewish master would not ask a Jewish um, slave to wash his feet. And we never read of a higher status person washing the feet of a lower status person. And we never read of a rabbi washing his disciples' feet, except for this rabbi, the Messiah, the one who'd come from God 
and who was returning to God. And so in this simple act, Jesus powerfully demonstrates an alternative view of greatness. <clears throat> when he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you, he asked them? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. This is not all that complicated, is it? The message is incredibly clear. If the Lord and teacher can humble himself to wash feet, you're not above doing a humble servant task like this for anyone else. Jesus calls his followers, you, me, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, he calls us into a life of love, a posture that expresses itself in humble service. And as I look around this place, I see lots and lots of people who I know just do this so beautifully. My dad's been really sick this last week, and uh, somebody knew about that last Sunday. And the, the people who have expressed their love and care for me this week in little ways that have been significant, you know who you are, it's just made a difference. And it's made me feel what a, what a wonderful thing to be a part of a community where people care. Somebody made us a casserole. It was beautiful. And uh, they didn't have to do that. They wrote a note with it. Somebody relieved me of a task I had to do that just freed me up for a night. And that, that made a difference. It's not hard sometimes to do those acts of service that make a difference for people. And if a posture is going to be um, noticed by people and significant in the lives of people, uh, as Christians, if we're going to adopt a posture, I reckon this posture of humility is going to be one that just uh, breaks down heaps and heaps and heaps of barriers. Because people appreciate kindness. Appreci people appreciate humility. People appreciate being served. Hello, Robin. I hadn't seen you till now. Welcome. <laughs> Beautiful to have Robin with us too, a humble servant of God. Actions speak louder than words, they say. And uh, I've said that really. Jesus' action is really powerful here. But if followers of Jesus are, being, are to be known for anything, let it be known that we're people who have a, have a posture of humility, loving service. But I said before I wanted to talk about actions but also words because I think when it comes to posture our words are critically important and uh, they matter maybe as much as, as actions so I want to talk just a little bit about humility in conversation this has probably been uh, brewing in my head for a couple of weeks now I went to a, a little seminar thing and there was a, a guy spoke and then there, I got a little booklet and the booklet was about it was called the end of thinking and it was about how we um, how we think and how we process stuff and how we respond to other people. And I found it really helpful. And he, he mentioned another thing, which is like a little um, YouTube video of a guy talking about how to have a difficult conversation. So I watched that, and it was great too. So really I'm just sharing with stuff that I've grabbed from somewhere else. Um, but I just hope it's helpful to you today. The first thing this guy said, one of the things he said in this book, and so I want to say there's two things to remember. First thing is... Two things to remember and then four questions to ask yourself. First thing is we're finite and we're fallible. We're all finite and we're all fallible. If you don't think so, well, you're unique. Um, you see, that's how the Christian story and the story of Judaism and, and the Islamic story, that's how it sees us as human beings. 
Uh, and that's why humility is such a, a fundamental posture. Humility keeps us aware of our limitations and it keeps us open to the possibility that we could be wrong uh, and very aware that we need to learn more. And so we're finite. We're, we're creatures. We're not the creator. And as human beings, we can't possess God-like knowledge because we're not God. And so human knowledge is, is really powerful, but it's, it's partial. It's incomplete. And as you talk to people like Troy studying a lot at the moment, and I think the thing that comes through from Troy when he talks about his study is that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know, the more you're just scraping around the edges of stuff. And I think all of us who've studied certain things in a bit of depth realise that we're just scratching the surface much of the time. So our knowledge is powerful, but it's, it's limited. Uh, and add to that the awareness of our fallibility that no matter how wonderful we are as human beings, we're, we're prone to go against what is good, uh, not only what is good for ourselves, but also what is good for other people. So we're all too capable of, of thinking and acting poorly. So they're two things I think we also always need to remember when we come into a conversation with somebody who has a different opinion to us. We're finite, we're all finite, and we're all fallible. Then I have these four questions, and I just hope they're, they're helpful to you. And they all come with a proverb attached. And the first question is, what does this person believe? When we're having a conversation with someone, it's very easy for us to just hear a little snippet of the conversation and not listen. How do, how do we actually listen long enough and patiently enough without butting in with our stuff? And I'm a terrible, terrible at this. How do we, when you do a marriage course, this is fundamental stuff, but it's, it's really fundamental to any conversation, isn't it? How do we listen well and listen to understand rather than listen to evaluate? Sure, both are important, but first of all, this guy stressed, we need to listen to understand. And if we don't take the time to listen really well to a person and listen to understand, but butt in with our stuff, you can be sure the conversation won't go very far. It'll, it'll probably be the last time they want to talk to you because you haven't taken the time to hear where they're coming from. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. That's a good proverb, isn't it? Proverbs 18, 13. So that's the first question. What does this person believe? Really find out. Listen. Listen to understand. And the second question is, why does this person believe? Interesting, the first little proverb there is, there is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Now, when we quote that proverb, we always get to that, but it ends in death. You know, there's a path that seems right, but it ends in death. The, 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 what that proverb is saying in one sense is that there is a path before each person that seems right. And so this person who you're talking to has an opinion and you've tried to listen to understand it, and the path that they are on seems right to them. So asking the question, why do you believe, is a really important question. We can tend to jump in with, you know, let me tell you how that view leads to death pretty quickly, can't we? Um, but I think we really need to take time and ask things like, you know, what, so why does that seem right to you? How did you reach that conclusion? What is your backstory that's helped you to get to that um, conclusion? You know, what are the influences that you've been listening to? Books, podcasts, stories that have influenced your life. The pur purposes of a per person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. So I wonder if that's a, a posture for us to be listening to understand, a bit of evaluation along the way, but also listening so that we understand why those... Um, deep-seated views in some cases are so strongly held. And then 
This is a, a classic one. Where do we agree? This guy talks about how in his, his Christian university, in his university, he gets all the students uh, to read the Quran. And uh, he says, he gets Christian parents who sent them, their children to this Christian university complaining, why are you getting our kids to read the Quran? He says, if we're going to speak to Muslim people about the faith that we hold dear, we need to understand what their book is. Oh, no, I haven't read the Quran. I feel... But he said that there's probably 1% of Christians uh, in America who have read any religious uh, material other than the religion of their own Christian faith. And if we're going to have meaningful conversations with people, um, we need to understand where they're coming from. So where do we agree? So he says, he, he says well, you don't read the Quran to pull it to pieces. You read it to say, well, what are the things that we agree on? That's just one example. The discerning heart seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. And then the last one was, based on this knowledge, how should I proceed? So we found out a fair bit about a person, and, and this, comes, this, this is really a critical point, isn't it? How do we proceed from here? How do we actually communicate something of our faith, of, of what matters to us, in the context of what we've learned about what's important to this other person? By wisdom a house is built, and through understanding it's established. Through knowledge its rooms are filled with rare and beautiful treasures. And this guy suggested that he asks this one question. He says to himself, with this person, at this time, in these circumstances, what is the one thing I should say? And I reckon that's not a bad uh, little, little point. This person. What's unique to this person? This person... Um, may have some uh, relational issues with you. Um, this person might have a history that uh, you know about and, and you, you're not so sure that whatever you say is going to go down too well. Sometimes there's a time that's suitable and a time that's not. Like in, in a marriage course, you tell people don't to talk, don't, don't have big, long conversations after 10 o'clock. In any conversation with people, there are times when people will be more receptive. Um, if somebody's just getting ready for their exams, you don't want to have a 10-hour dialogue. Um, and in these circumstances, what's going on in, in this person's life and in our world? And then he says, what is the one thing I should say? Think about the one thing. We can so easily dump all our stuff, can't we? Because this is my one opportunity to dump it all on you. Um, might not get another opportunity, so I'm going to dump it all. He says, what is the one thing I should say? So humility is really important. Jesus enacted it beautifully when he washed his disciples' feet. We can do that, and that posture is just so, so beautiful uh, and so acceptable in our culture. People love kindness. But our words also are really important. C.S. Lewis always has something good to say, and in his book, Mere Christianity, which was written probably 70 years ago, uh, still incredibly relevant, he says this. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man... He will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person. That's a good word, isn't it? Smarmy. You know what smarmy means? I have to look it up. It means trying to gain approval in a way that's insincere or excessive. He won't be a greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you'll think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He'll not be thinking about humility. He'll not be thinking about himself at all. Isn't that a beautiful quote? In Mark 10, the end of Mark 10, 
This is Troy's specialty, this, this chapter in Mark. Um, James and John uh, saying to Jesus, you know, when you sit on your glorious throne in the end, we, we want to sit in places of honour next to you on either side of you. And the other disciples get really upset that um, James and John should even ask this. And Jesus replies with this. He says, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over them, over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, we have the, the example of Jesus. Jesus who not only washed his disciples' feet, but almost in that enacted parable, he was looking forward to another time when he would be uh, unbelievably vulnerable, where he would go to a cross, where he would die uh, a humiliating death. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul could say in Galatians, I've, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Jesus that Jesus' followers follow. And uh, we're called to be followers of him. Gonok's going to come up now and, uh, and uh, just lead us as we... We move into a time of, of communion. Beck's going to lead us through that. We're remembering in this uh, significant act that the one who went to that cross was one who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself even to death for you and for me.